But again, open your Bibles. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians 16. And we come to our, our, the end of our, of our study of 1 Corinthians, as I mentioned last week or the week before. We're going to pick the Corinthian letters back up after the first of the year with a look at 2 Corinthians. That's a book that's often neglected, uh, but it's got some tremendous stuff in it. So we'll look at 2 Corinthians after uh, the holiday season. But we, of course, have that to look forward to as well. But this morning, uh, we will finish um, our study of the Corinthian letters. And so without any delay, let's get right to the text. Um, we'll be going over uh, the chapter as a whole, um, but I really want to focus on verses 5 to 9. So we're going to read those. So 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in the fifth verse. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits, but I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Father, we do thank you for your word, and do pray, Father, we would hear from you today. Lord, that's the need of our heart um, every day, to receive uh, the instruction, the nourishment, the encouragement, all that your word uh, offers to us, Lord. That's our need. So we ask you that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I was working on my, uh, my, my radio message earlier in the week, and it occurred to me, you know, we had this, this thing we do in our mind, and I think it's probably true of most of us, that we, we know that the New Testament was written in Greek, and we know the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and there's some Aramaic that's you know, kind of scattered through there. But I think deep down inside, we have this feeling that the Bible's really in English. Really, you know, it's in English. And that, that Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek stuff, that was just like steps it went through to get to where it's supposed to be, right? That's kind of the way we think. And I don't think that's unique to us. I think every culture that has the Bible translated into their language well you get that same feeling like this really is the, this is God's word in our language. And, and I thought about that first in terms of the obstacle that it creates. We talk a lot about that. You have to get past your language and all your cultural barriers and that stuff. But I also thought this week, what a testimony that is to the fact that God's word is living. That even after it's gone through translations and all that other stuff, we still read it and it still speaks to us here, 2,000 years after it was written, as it is, it is alive, and it does speak to us. How marvelous that is, and I was just, just kind of encouraged as I was looking at that, because it does. We'll find this morning, even the specifics, because Paul does a couple of things in this final chapter. He's, he's dealt with all, most, all of the problems, at least the ones he wants to deal with, and it's been a lot of stuff. We've covered a lot of ground, and Paul's covered a lot of stuff in the Corinthian letters. And one of the things that we get from this letter is a little bit of insight into how Paul works and how Paul thinks. And I don't know if you've noticed the pattern through those first 15 chapters. Paul, because he's got a deeply divided church, and they're, they're upset, and they're arguing about a lot of stuff. I don't know if you noticed, what Paul almost never does is get in there like a referee and throw the flag, and you're wrong, so you get the ball in 15 yards. He just doesn't do that. Uh, what he'll do is... He'll, his pattern is to always bring people to the most important thing. 
like when he began, he began at the very beginning talking about they were all upset about I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Cephas. About they were all, you know, all had their own leaders they were following. Well, what does Paul say? Well, no, that one's right and that one's wrong. No, he said, hey, I planted, Apollos watered, God was giving the increase. And he settles the issue that way. And even on that big section on like spiritual manifestations, right, what does he do? He starts by saying, let all things be done for edification. And then even two chapters later, when he begins to get into some specifics, into some details, it's not a matter of, you know, you're right, you're wrong. It's always go back to that idea of what builds up the body of Christ. Let all, always working towards that principle of edification of the body. And I think that's really helpful when we see that, and we see that in Paul's methodology. I think that's a good way for us to think when we're dealing with things we disagree about or issues that may come up. Let's remember... The real, the real core thing. So that's been really helpful, I think, as we've gone through. But now he comes to this, and in 16, he's not dealing with, you know, big problems now anymore, and that's kind of refreshing. Uh, he does do a little bit of what I would call business, a little housekeeping, in the first few verses, but then he gets into some personal stuff at the end. And that's where I want to spend most of our time this morning. Just take a few minutes to look at this business stuff in the first few verses. In the first few verses, he refers in verse 1, to this collection for the saints. He says, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so do you. On the first day of each week, let each one of you put aside and save as he may prosper, that no collections be made when I come. And then he talks about carrying the, uh, the, the gift that is collected um, back to Jerusalem. Uh, other than it's going to Jerusalem, we don't have any information on exactly the nature of why the offering was taken. Okay? Obviously, the Corinthians did, because he didn't need to explain it. And the inference is that the Galatian church knew, because he didn't, you know, they had already taken the offering, right? Most scholars would say, and I think it's very reasonable, that this is a response to a famine that hit the entire Roman Empire, and which is referred to back in, back in Acts chapter 11. And you can read that if you'd like to on your own. In Acts chapter 11, there was a prophetic prediction that there would be a famine in the entire world, well that of course meant the Roman world, they weren't talking about South America, in the entire Roman world, that was their world, there would be an empire-wide famine. Okay? And it adds in that, that in, in, in the Acts account, which was written afterwards, that that famine occurred during the reign of Claudius, the emperor Claudius, and the dates line up with what's happening here. Uh, the really interesting thing about that is, that used to be one of those points at which uh, you know, the scholarly critics all said, well, the Bible's obviously wrong because there are no extra-biblical references to the Nile River being low during Claudius's reign. And that's the only way in the Roman Empire you get an empire-wide famine. You can have local, you know, crop failures. That happens anywhere. But in order for crops to, in order to have a famine over the entire empire, the only way that can happen is if the Nile were to drop, because the Nile was the breadbasket for the empire. Without Egypt, the empire starves, basically. And so if the Nile was low, there wouldn't be a good crop, and the empire would have a famine. And that was pretty well established, and everybody knew that, and that's in all the historical records. Well, there's no record of the Nile being low during Claudius's reign. And so all the critics said, well, there you go, the Bible's wrong again, right? Well, a study came out in 2011 that was published um, by Cambridge University, so I think we can call it good, right? They published a study 
someone discovered by examining the historical record that you got the same effect of the Nile being low if the Nile was high. Because the Nile being low would ruin the crops. They didn't have enough water. The Nile being high kept them from planting in the first place. Or they would have to wait until the Nile receded and then they could plant. A late planting would have the exact same effect. And sure enough, there are two or three different instances in the extra-biblical material where the Nile was high during Claudius's reign. So now they do establish that there were famines during Claudius's reign, and what do you know, the Bible's right again. So much for the critics, right? So that lines up, all that history lines up that there was a famine in the land, and it would have hit the church in Jerusalem with extra severity because um, they were ostracized. The church in Jerusalem was ostracized from society. They don't have funds. It was established that it was one of the weakest churches financially. And so with a famine, grain prices would skyrocket. And so it was looked upon by the other churches throughout the empire as their responsibility. And you find that throughout the New Testament. The other churches understanding that they had a debt to the Jerusalem church, they should respond. So this is that offering he's referring to. Now some Christians have looked at this because it's, it would really be good as, as New Testament Christians to be able to find some really clear-cut, specific directions to exactly how we should do our offerings, right? And Paul says, first day of the week, as you prosper, and they look to this. The only problem with that is this is a very unique situation, and it's very clearly aiming at resolving a specific situation. And it doesn't give us the really clear-cut, this is what you must do, we don't get that, right? If you look through Scripture, you find all kinds of stuff in the Old Testament laying out very clear, specific directions about giving. The New Testament is a much more general principle of participate in the whole idea of giving and you will receive. Give and you will be blessed. Step out and take care of the needs that you see around you whether it is the regular needs in sustaining the local church, or it is a specific need like this. We all love that verse that say, and our God shall supply all of your riches, you know, all of your needs according to his riches and glory. We love that one, right? Where is it found? In the Philippian letter. Right after Paul got done telling the Philippian church, you guys were the absolute first in taking care of the needs of others, specifically Paul's own needs. So the New Testament principle is give freely and you shall receive freely. Give freely and you'll be taken care of. Now, some people ask the question about the tithe. That's a really good habit. Because giving is a spiritual discipline. And then exercising disciplines, I don't know about anybody else, but when I'm going to participate in any kind of a discipline, whether it's a spiritual discipline or exercising, it really helps me to set some kind of a regular pattern to follow. And we do that in terms of, I recommend that highly in terms of giving, simply as a spiritual discipline. But you're not going to find it as a law. You're not going to find it as a rule. It's a guideline Christians follow, and those who follow it do well. So that's what Paul's talking about here in this first part. He's talking about the need in Jerusalem. And what I really appreciate about Paul, again, especially in this last chapter, where Paul's getting kind of personal. He's off of all the problems. He's talking about personal issues. We start to see kind of his heart and mind a little bit. And he makes this marvelous statement 
to do this on the first day of the week, verse 2, and set things aside so that no collection be made when I come. Paul didn't want to have to deal with it. Paul seems to think this issue of giving, of generosity, to be so routine to the church that he shouldn't have to talk about it. I'm expecting you folks to know how this works, therefore do it. So when I get there, we can talk about other stuff, right? This isn't something that Paul wanted to spend a lot of time on. I happen to agree with Paul. So again, that's the principle that we find as he talks about the need to respond to this crisis that's going on in Jerusalem. That's the business at hand. But now let's get to these personal notes he makes, and I really want to focus on that. At verse 5 he says, But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia. He writes the letter from Ephesus. And if you know your Eastern Mediterranean at all, you know that Ephesus was on the, on the western coast of Turkey, direct, almost directly across from Athens. I have to remember you're, on, you're facing this way. Almost directly across from Athens, okay? He's in Ephesus, major church of the first century, one of the first really strong churches. And if he wants to go west, he can get it one of two ways. He either has to take a ship or start walking north. And his plans are clearly to start walking north. And he's going to go north, and when he reaches northern Turkey, he's going to hang a left, and he's going to go through Macedonia. Macedonia is that, it, that wide region all the way from modern Albania to Turkey. It, it, can, it includes the countries north of Greece down into Greece. It's a really hot political issue in Greece. Macedonia. How many of you have seen a map that has the word Phyrom on it? You wonder, what in the world is Phyrom? Phyrom is the former Yugoslavia Republic of Macedonia. Because when they broke out, when they broke Yugoslavia up into little countries, the Macedonians wanted to call their country Macedonia, but the Greeks didn't want to let them call it Macedonia because Macedonia's. So they settled it by calling. Talk about a horrible name for a country. The former Yugoslavia Republic of Macedonia. Well, they've since settled that, and they can call it Macedonia now. They worked it out. But I just say that so that you really remember it's that broad area across. The reason that the Greeks really want everybody to know that Macedonia is in Greece is because Alexander the Great was a Macedonian, and they want credit for him. Yeah, they want credit for him. So Macedonia has to be Greece. So Paul's going to go through that area, and then he's going to come south, and he's going to visit Philippi, where there's a church, Thessaloniki, there's a church there, and finally come to Corinth. But here's the beautiful part of this passage. Paul said, I've made up my mind, I'm going to go through Macedonia. I got that down, right? And then he says, perhaps, maybe, I'll stay with you. In fact, I might even spend the winter there. This is the Apostle Paul, who just got done, if, if we can use the expression, laying down the law to the Corinthians. You're wrong on this, you're wrong on this, you've got to work on this, this is messed up, fix this. And he has no problem speaking with a lot of authority. But when he comes to his own travel plans, it's like, this is my plan, this is, this is the next step, I'm going to go to Macedonia. Beyond that, I just don't know. Paul has a willingness, even though he just spoke with such tremendous authority, he has a very great willingness to admit there are some things I don't know. This man's ability to say, I frankly do not know what comes next. I have my plans, and Paul certainly had plans. 
He had his priorities. He certainly had priorities. He makes that clear in the Roman letter. He said, my biggest priority is to speak the gospel where nobody else has spoken it before. I don't want to build on somebody else's foundation. So ultimately, his goal, we know, from, is to go to Spain. That's his ultimate direction is Spain. But he's not even talking about Spain here because he doesn't know. And I don't know about you. I talk to a lot of, I hear a lot of Christians when I'm talking to them, and they really get stressed because they want to serve God and they want to know what to do, and God is not like, boom, you know, showing them what to do. And there's a frustration that sets in, not knowing exactly what to do. Well, how did Paul, how did Paul deal with that? He said, I don't know. What he did have were priorities that guided him. Paul never had to spend time sitting on a rock saying, well, until God shows me what to do, I don't know what to do. Because he had established clear priorities in his life that he knew wherever he went, he was going to preach the gospel. And if it meant going down to the riverside where a bunch of ladies are washing clothes, he would do that and the church in Philippi was born. If it, meant going, if it meant renting out a school and talking, hauling his students into a school, a private school, because they wouldn't let him use anywhere else, he would do that. And the church in Ephesus was born, and the entire province of Asia heard the word of the Lord as a result of that. So Paul shows this incredible flexibility. He might not know what's going to happen tomorrow, but he knows what he's going to be doing because he has these priorities. He has a very clear set of priorities that guide everything that he does. So he says, I'm, I'm, I want to stay with you. I might even spend the winter with you uh, so that you may send me on my way wherever I'm going. I don't know where it is, but I'm going to expect you to send me on my way because that's part of your job, he says. Now, what's amazing about the man is he's able to affirm these people even as he's saying that because he says in verse 7, For I do not wish to see you now just in passing. I hope to remain with you for some time. And then he says this, If the Lord permits. How many times have you, have you gone into prayer and said, Lord, what is your will for this? Right? And again, we're expecting God to somehow send us a telegram or a phone call, maybe a text. I haven't gotten one of those yet. Right? It'd be so much easier if he did it that way. No. You've gotten one? No. Oh, God, the way you were wagging your head. Maybe you did. Right? No. But what does Paul have? Paul has a set of priorities. Those priorities translate into aspirations and plans and dreams and hopes and he said, my real hope ultimately is to get to Spain. Right now I'm going to Macedonia. I'm going to see you and try to get there on the way. And then he says, if the Lord permits. That tells us something about Paul's worldview that I think is extraordinary. He looked upon, Paul looked upon his life in this life as one big opportunity to impact the next one. Paul looked upon every moment Every asset he had, and this is completely consistent with what Jesus talks about in the parable of the talents, if you want a, a theological basis upon which to, to, to support this, Paul looked at every asset he had as an opportunity to impact something in this world that would translate into the next world. And the way I, I visualize this, and I don't know, maybe kind of weird, but I think of this life in a way, if you could think of 
um, like a Bible Monopoly game. Only instead of winning by acquiring houses and building hotels on Broadway and all that other stuff, if you could win this Bible Monopoly game by like how many lives you impacted, right? And I'm not going to say souls you save. Get too narrow. Our calling is to make disciples. It's a much broader thing. So the way you win this Bible Monopoly game is by impacting other people and drawing them into and strengthening them in the kingdom of God, whatever that looks like. So you got the whole, like you have the whole assortment of opportunities around the Monopoly board. You have this whole assortment of ways to impact people and draw them in the kingdom and influence them for Jesus. And you win by accumulating you know, like Monopoly dollars for all the good stuff, you do, all the things you're able to do, right? Only here's the difference. At the end of Monopoly, you put everything back in the box and put it away, right? The kingdom of heaven, at the end of the game, the end of the game, at the end of my life, God takes that monopoly money away from me and gives me eternal reward in place. Now just think about that for a minute. How would your experience of monopoly be if you knew at the end of the game, the person that ran the game was going to take the monopoly money away and give you real money instead? You would pay the game with a whole new level of enthusiasm and vigor. And losing would hurt that much more, right? But winning would be, oh, so much better, right? That, think a picture of what Paul sees. And, it, and it's revealed to us in this little word that he uses, if the Lord permits. He's not waiting on God to tell him exactly what to do. He has a plan. He has an agenda. He has aspirations. And he's going to wear himself out trying to make it happen. I've got this scheme about going to Spain next and I'm going to plant a church there and it's going to grow and that's going to be great and I'm going to get an eternal reward for it if God will just let me get away with it. Probably not the best terminology, but you know what I'm saying. I want to see, Paul says, what God will permit me to do. I'm not going to wait for his instructions. I'm going to see with what he'll permit me to do. right? And then he says this, but I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. I really appreciate his discipline because his heart's over here. He's in Ephesus. There's already a church there. But he exercises the discipline to stay in Ephesus to do the work that he has to do. In, normally to keep Paul in one place, God had to put him in jail someplace. Um, this is him staying voluntarily in Ephesus. That's a tremendous act of self-discipline on the apostles' part. And then he says this in verse 9. This is why he's staying in Ephesus. This is what it took to keep Paul in one place. For a wide door for effective service has been opened to me. Paul said, I see a golden opportunity here to make some of that monopoly money. I see a golden opportunity. We don't know what it was. We have no details. We don't know what it was. But Paul saw something that enabled him to impact people's lives for eternity. And he said, I'm going to take advantage of that as long as that door is open, even though, look at the rest of the verse, there are many adversaries. Um, it's so easy when things are hard, when things are difficult, where every way you turn, there seems to be an obstacle or there seems to be a barrier. It is so easy to say, well, I must not be in God's will. I mean, there's something else I need to do. Because everything is going wrong. Well, what's Paul saying? And the word that's used for adversaries here, that is not referred to difficult circumstances. 
that refers to something that is specifically aligned against him. That is something that's geographic. They would actually use this term geographically when something was specifically oriented directly against something else. Paul is saying there, we don't know if it's spiritual, we don't know if it's physical, we don't know what, but whatever it was, it was directly in his way and directly opposing me. But that did not discourage him from saying, nonetheless, I will press on to see what I can accomplish here, to do everything I can because a door is open and it's my opportunity to succeed. That's Paul's priority. That's how Paul thinks. Paul saw this life as an opportunity to impact eternity. God grant us that kind of wisdom. God grant us that kind of insight. And there's nothing anywhere in Scripture that tells me these realities are meant only for people with some kind of ministerial title or some kind of ministerial appointment or something along those lines. When Jesus talked about the parable of the, of the talents, the parable of the stewards, he didn't say, I'm going to talk to you guys who were in charge. The rest of you go get a cup of coffee because this doesn't apply to you. Now, Jesus never presented it in any light like that at all. One of the incredible truths of the kingdom is that the moment we come into relationship with him, the door is open for us to begin to impact the lives of others, to introduce other people to the person of Jesus, to the reality of eternal life, and to help them grow in that experience. One of the most rewarding experiences for me is to stand in front of a class, like I do at the Bible College, and talk to the students about the Word of God. Because not only is it fun, I do enjoy it, but I see in their minds things happen. I see lights come on. I have a teaching assistant poor fellow has sat through my Greek classes for like four years, right? And he keeps hanging in there. And the, the other day I said something about, uh, actually it was about the Greek word yakre, which is doctor. And I told him, this comes into English. And they'll give me a blank expression, including my four-year teaching assistant. I said, okay, what's the Greek word for child? And they all said, bedi, all right, okay. And just that fact, he went, finally, that word makes sense to me. He finally connected Bedi with yatre to get pediatrician, right? When I see those things happen, my heart is on fire because I understand they're going to take it and they're going to minister to others. It's a monopoly money, man. I see that monopoly money being turned into eternal asset, eternal reward, right? Now, that's how I do it. That's my thing. That's the direction God has given me. There is not a one of us that God has not given abilities, resources, points of contact in the community. Because while I can go into the Bible college, of course, you go places I don't go. You have contacts I can't make. God grant us all the wisdom to see every opportunity as an asset to be spent with eternity in mind. Father, I thank you that we can come together this morning, Lord, and as we wrap up our study in Corinthians, Lord, we've seen so many problems and so many difficulties, and we look at them and go, man, that's a messed up church, and it looks just like us. They're like us so many ways, Lord, but the very fact that Paul has spent all this time 
correcting the Corinthian church and building the Corinthian church tells us that there was work yet for the Corinthian church to do in Corinth, Lord, and beyond. And he opens this door for them, Father, to, to minister across the Mediterranean in Jerusalem, Father. Lord, I just pray, Father, that as we've gone through this, our eyes would be open, especially this morning, to see that you have placed us in this world, Father, for a period of time. And this precious period of time that we have in this world is a chance to make a difference in eternity for ourselves, for our families, for others, Lord. God, give us wisdom to spend that time well. Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.